0: All right, man. Welcome to the intro for uh, episode 68 of Crow Triple Seven Radio podcast. Jason Lingren is with me. We are going to talk about death. Um, We don't really get per se directly into death until the second hour, but what we do do is take time to cover the traditions around the world that shape our view of death. Um, In most cases in this part of the world, I would say so few of us even consider death, and it's probably a pretty important part of our lives. During the show, I couldn't remember the line from that old Pink Floyd song. Um, It's shorter of breath and one day closer to death. Um, It's a true statement, and we should think about it more often, and we should get used to the idea of death. In my view, we shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't go along with all the media programming of the fear porn that surrounds death. So what Jason and I did was we just broke down traditions from all over the place. You know, so often people come to my channel or to my website and they have a very rigid view of uh traditions and belief systems. And with that in mind, Jason and I thought we'd cover everyone we could think of that's a major tradition right now. Uh it's important. I mean, after all, you're looking at people who are just people like you and I. They have kids, They may have a culture that's been around a long time. Chances are we can learn something from them. It's not always the case, but the chances are. In this episode, uh, in the first hour, we will break down uh, many traditions in a very overarching way. We don't try to get specific. We don't try to act like experts. We're taking the publicly available information and drawing a picture about how different parts of the world view dying. As fate would have it, my first job out of high school was working in a nursing home. And uh, as a very young person, I saw death a lot, and I saw it quick. And it changed my view for the rest of my life uh, about what death is. And uh, the more I look around where I live and the part of the world I live, it's held at arm's length. It's this surgical thing that goes down, people don't interact with it. They don't examine it. They don't think about it. They don't even consider that someday they're going through the same darn door. All of us, every flower, every guinea pig, every everything, we're all going through that door. So it's just a part of being, isn't it? Um, in the second hour, I really get into this with Jason uh, and we both recount some experiences. Um, lot to lot to cover there. Anyhow, I hope you'll join me on this journey. We're going to back off from Conspiracy World for uh, one episode here. Uh, it seems Google has, again, changed its guidelines and the conspiracy or what they label conspiracy website. You know, I don't really consider my my podcast a conspiracy website. Um, we're not making this stuff up. We do research. Um, we may not always be right on the money, but we do the best we can. We try to present the information objectively, but clearly the powers that be are going to start. Cinching the screws down on uh, on content like this. So I guess the question becomes: um, As users of this information, will you guys stand for it? Is it okay for Google or anyone else to limit what's being talked about? For my part, it's not. But anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren and cover the traditions around the world that shape our view of death and dying. Man, cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 68. I have Jason Lingren with me and we're going to talk a little bit about death Um, from a Western perspective in the part of the world where I live. Death is kind of a funny thing. We almost have uh, I don't want to say infantile, but a very kind of retarded view of death in this part of the world. Uh, We push it away at arm's length. We hide it. The whole process of when someone dies becomes very surgical where um, they're hidden away. Someone comes and whisks them off, and the next thing you know, you're holding a jar of ashes. Um, This is not so with the entirety of what we would call history or the entirety of other cultures. There are actually cultures out there who have spent seemingly hundreds of years dissecting what happens at death, um, what people experience as they go into death. Uh, I think the earliest kind of wake up call I got that there were other parts of the world that viewed death differently than we do here in the West was the first time that I got my hands on the Tibetan book of the dead, also known as the Bardo Thodol. Um, I was young. I don't remember exactly how young, probably in my twenties. And I was astonished to see that these people we're recognizing the signs of death when you're about to die, what, appearance, what a person experiences, um, all these things. We'll get into that a little bit. But um, as on the tale of having read that for the first time, it just struck me. Can these things be true? And so uh, it's one of the things that I've gone at over and over in, in my life as I went down the road. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. You ready to do the old uh, death thing here?
1: Hello, and yes, I am. The the big thing to follow up on what you just said with that, I'd say that in Western culture, they've sanitized and chopped it up and over-corporatized the entire death experience just like they do with everything these days. And, of course, that's been going on for probably over 100 years
0: now, I would say, right? Right. Well, in in some ways, I think we could probably state outright that we in a way we live in a death based system. Um, After all, corporations control mostly everything and corporations are dead entities that are given the rights of a living being. Um, We've talked about this ad nauseum, haven't we?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not discussed in that fashion. It's more like corporations are given life because they have the same rights as us.
0: Yeah, but it's a bit like saying, you know, I've said it before, you can't make a false thing true. You can't make a true thing false. So you can take a thing without life all day long and claim you've given it the rights of a living thing. But at the end of the day, even the word corporation has a prefix that tells us corp, uh, which brings to mind a dead body. Um, you know, there, there's really no getting away from these things. You know, I had written a uh a blog sometime back, I think it was titled is Death, A State of Mind. And one of the traditions in the West we have is birthdays. And the reason I thought about this is because when I was in Okinawa in the Marine Corps, uh, Okinawa is one of the place where some of the longest lived people are, uh, I think it's marked as such even to this day. But on the outsides of where the Marines would work, there'd be like these chain-like fences and every little open portion of land, there would be gardens. And there was always this really, really old guy on a bike every day would come down the uh, the sugarcane roads that that led into these gardens and he'd work. And one day I actually talked to him um, and he was old and I asked him how old he was and mm-hmm. he told me he, he didn't know, um, you know, he, he he didn't know how old he was. And I thought, wow, what, what a thing. And, you know, later on, as I mentioned, I wrote that blog about birthdays. Birthdays are a funny thing um, as I began to dissect. It, I began to consider that it's just more of kind of the death-based system that we live in. It's programming in a way. Uh, We take a cake, we put a candle for each year we've been alive, and then we snuff them out. Um, As I began to consider this, I thought, I wonder if there's more here. So I looked into it. The claim is, is that the birthday cake goes back to some ancient Greek rite. But the the irony here is, it's claimed that the lighting of the birthday candles is mocking the moon. You know, you turn out the lights you light up the candles and supposedly in some ancient greek tradition that was about artemis and the moon and at the time i had been studying the moon and of course the moon is constantly associated with death so we have a lot of things in our culture um that echo uh older aspects of death that we don't do anything more but put on a party hat we don't think about them but anyhow um you ready to jump into this thing
1: yes i am you know it's interesting if you weren't so hung up on the numbers, maybe you might live a little longer if you're just not thinking about it all the time. You die when you die instead of being concerned with the fact that, oh my god, I'm in my 80s now or oh my god, I'm in my 90s now.
0: I put that forward in the blog that I wrote that maybe birthdays and counting each year you've been alive is not the best thing because in essence what you're doing is saying I'm getting older. You know, what's that old Pink Floyd song? Um, Time. One one step, one breath, or each day closer to death. I forget the exact line of it, but that's basically what birthdays are. You know, you're kind of like ticking your own clock. Um, in the article, I mentioned the idea of taking twins at birth and separating them, and having one live the system we do, with all the violence and death that's spewed at us through media every day, and the you know the common knowledge that the average person who's male in the West thinks they're going to die at around age 74 because that's what we're told. Taking the other twin and don't expose them to any of that you know, which one would live longer. So I go down that road. But anyhow, without rambling too much, Jason, let, let's jump into this thing.
1: All right. Well, obviously, most people have some sort of view on what happens when our physical bodies die. Uh, there are many faiths all over the world with varying belief systems. And there are those who go by a very strict scientific mindedness that nothing whatsoever happens when we die. It's over. And that's that. And there there definitely are still a lot of people that that, uh, cling to that, and that's all they have. Now, many people have claimed, of course, to have had near-death experiences with various descriptions of what they saw as their physical life was close to being ended, but in fact, they didn't actually die. There have always been claims from certain individuals that they can speak with the dead as well, but no one has ever been able to prove that, that I'm aware of anyway, in a scientific setting. So death in general, it's a necessary part of life because our natural world survives and thrives off of what is generally called the circle of life, with the ending of one thing being the beginning of another. While there are many spiritual and religious points of views all over the world, the general connection between all of them are the next few points I'm going to go into.
0: Right. And, you know, I, I would point out that in a lot of the older traditions that really have a parody with what we would call alchemy in the West, um, things like uh, even the, the Book of the Dead by the Tibetans, they're using the idea of earth, air, wind and fire. Um, they're still using these basic what we would call alchemical ideas. But the thing is, um they are not afraid of death, where over in our part of the world, it's like the exact opposite. So I think that's a critical point to make before we jump in here. Go ahead, ma'am.
1: Right. So spiritual views and or religious views. These next couple points, generally what it's, it's used for in a person's life, it, it, to help people make sense of life, particularly when it seems unfair or there are times of suffering, whether it be a personal thing or what may be being seen in others.
0: You know that that's kind of an ironic bullet point because the whole idea of karma and other parts of the world and you know it's been argued in the west that karma is basically newtonian it's cause and effect which by its description it really is cause and effect um and that plays into a lot of religious traditions but keep pushing man
1: it can give support and comfort in times of stress and grief most especially at times of others death and of course give a feeling of meaningful purpose to life. Part of this is almost always, despite whatever faith it is, although there are a few exceptions, to help others in any way you can. For everyone to be good and decent people and moving forward to help make each other's lives better overall. You know, it's
0: a bit ironic because in most religious traditions, you do find the idea of trying to help others Um, in Islam. I think it's one of the major pillars of the religion in uh, other and Eastern religions it's stated over and over um, that this is for the benefit of all sentient beings. So I I think there's a lot of there there to that bullet point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, there are a few exceptions. But for the most part, it seems that most larger scale religions are all about Building the community, because I think a lot of this would have started in early humanity because of communities and that you're all united. You know, we all believe the same thing. We're all working towards the same goals. We're all here to help each other. And, you know, that's generally a very good concept to have when you're a struggling community.
0: Right. You know, there's no downing the idea of uh, service to others, helping others, uh, in the even in the Christian tradition, the idea of turning the other cheek, all these kind of more altruistic ideas. But uh, what we find when we start to get into religions, particularly in the West— is that they become very rote where people are doing things because it's traditional. Um, you know, not too long ago I was looking at the Vatican again. Um they did you know they have like a I forget how big it is it is it four meters, I forget. Um there's a big pine cone outside the Vatican. And and it's a bit ironic. I I started thinking, what's that pine cone doing there? And I started to look into it, and I came to find out that of course it's uh it's an allegory for the pineal gland. Um, but one of the traditions in the Catholic tradition is uh, Palm Sunday, where they take year-old burnt-up palm ash, and they smear it over your pineal gland, and that's what got me going on this, because I was aware of other traditions where they they mark the pineal gland with bright, vibrant color, and here uh, it seemed like an underlying current of death to me, and there was that big old pine cone sitting out there. And I started to think, I wonder if you asked 100 Catholics in the courtyard if they could tell you why that pine cone is there. It's clearly, clearly um, allegorizing the importance of an activated pineal gland, which is kind of the age we come into here, where we expect people to be having more abilities and to be having more mental fact faculties. But anyhow, I don't want to track off too far. I just think it's it's ironic uh, when we begin to take apart some of the religious traditions that we can see in our part of the world.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And of course, Catholicism uses a lot of symbology. And I don't necessarily think a lot of Catholics know what all those symbols actually, in fact, mean.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of incantations that go with it, too, and a lot of them are done in Latin, and there are a lot of people who don't speak Latin. Of course, Latin is claimed to be a dead language, which, of course, it's not. Um, It's the root of even all science. You know, you name something uh, in a science setting, and almost certainly there's going to be Latin in it. But anyhow, go ahead, man.
1: So... Early humans, from what we can tell, had a strong respect not just for the dead, but a fully accepted notion of a functioning spirit world and afterlife, with the concept of ancestor worship being a very common feature amongst early tribal humans. They may hold beliefs in different realms, as well as a belief in spirits that reside in trees, high grass, up in the sky, under the ground, or on top of mountains. And, of course, some mountains would hold special significance. Spirits could perhaps even reside in animals at times.
0: You know, th- this is always interesting, interesting when we look at early civilizations or civilizations that are still very in tune with nature. Um, it is interesting to me to see how they deal with things like this. I recently saw a show on Japan where they kind of deified a mountain – Um, And I thought, well, that's interesting. Why are they deifying the mountain? By the time the end of the show had come, uh, it showed that basically this mountain in the vicinity of where they lived provided everything. The water came down from the mountain. I mean, the whole ecosystem side of things basically did show that the difference in the way they were living was due to that mountain and they gave it respect. But in that respect, however you want to view the religious aspect of it, what they were doing was profoundly – accepting the importance of this mountain in their tradition and protecting it, making sure it wasn't logged, uh, the the water wasn't polluted, these kinds of things. And that, to me, is where you begin to see real value that matters. But anyhow.
1: Well, some of these concepts can actually still be seen hanging around until today. Uh, What's left of the Native American population still hold a very strong sense of nature and and that connection. uh, And a lot of African tribes still do as well.
0: Yeah, um, there, there, there's no getting away from it. Even, even when we uh, when we travel through the southwest uh, in the United States, uh, there are still a lot of places that are considered to be populated by what is called Native Indians. I'm um, not sure what to make of that at times. But what we actually find when we go in there, um, we, we see the rock circles. We see the other things associated with the religion. And again, it seems to me to tie very closely with the more natural, more alchemical ideas that we've kind of – sort of inherited in the West. Anyhow, go ahead.
1: So let's look next at what is generally called pagan beliefs. And examples of this could be Celtic Druidism and the New Age paganism of Wicca that actually draws heavily from the Druids. There's a very strong belief in the cycle of life. There is some uncertain and contradictory information on the Druids' beliefs in death and the afterlife. But the general notion seems to be this idea of a happy afterlife, which, according to many old tales, made them very fearless in battle. They seem to have a belief in the transmigration of souls. This druidic teaching could have spirits being reborn, not just as humans, but any other form in nature, even animals or inanimate objects at times. Old tales mention humans returning as new humans for further spiritual advancement through a fully lived life, an animal to increase their honor or spiritual authority, or even a pool of water, or as you mentioned before, perhaps even something to do with a mountain. There is also the notion of a happy land of the dead. Now, Wicca seems to hold some of these beliefs as well, also with the idea that a departed soul can still have a relationship with the living, for the identity of the former living being survives past physical death. The wheel turns, and sometimes things must be let go but the wheel will turn again and things that have been lost will be returned to us the form may change but nothing is ever really lost
0: So at the base of it, these are really kind of what we would call in the modern day alchemical ideas. Uh, I've said it before in, in alchemy, the idea is that nothing can be lost because the elements that they break down our world in can transmute one into the other and the other. So the kind of perfection idea in that system is you really can't ever lose anything. And in those ideas, death is included. And when you contrast what Jason just said to things like Buddhism, where in some Buddhist traditions um you'll you'll hear the idea that a person could be reborn as an animal and i always thought that was the more i thought about it i thought how can that be you reach you know the pinnacle as a human being or i guess what we assume is the pinnacle and then i could come back as a frog but the more i looked into buddhism i began to find other Um, sects of Buddhism that said that's not true at all. Once you're human, you're a human, but they all hold the same idea that we're on a revolving wheel, as Jason just pointed out, this alchemy idea in a way where something transmutes into something, into something, into something. It's always here. It's never lost. And um, I I think death is this very idea in a lot of the world's traditions. But anyhow, go ahead, man.
1: Let's look next at the ancient Egyptians. The belief was that the body was made up of several parts – the Ba, or soul, the Ka, or life force, and Aj, the force of divine inspiration of life. To survive in the afterlife, Ka would require the deceased physical body to remain intact, and this is where the process of mummification comes into play. Now, this varied depending on the social class of the individual. Mummification was considered an extremely important death rite because without it, they would perish for all eternity, and not gain any sort of afterlife. After all the rites were completed, the deceased would begin the long journey through the underworld, led by Anubis, the god of the dead, in what was called the Hall of Two Truths. At one end of the Hall of Two Truths was seated Osiris on a throne, accompanied by other members of the Egyptian pantheon, as well as 42 judges. In the center of the room, there was a balance. The axes that made it up were measured by Thoth, the god of the scribes. On this was weighed the heart of the deceased, because they felt that the soul lived in the heart. In front of the spiritual court, the deceased had to pronounce a confession, a declaration of innocence, that no harm was caused to others. The heart would then be placed on the scale to be measured against a feather, and a feather was their symbol of justice. If the plate the heart was on tilted more than the plate with the feather, the deceased would be devoured by Amit, a monster that was half lion and half hippopotamus. If the heart was weighed to be positive, the deceased could enter the kingdom of Osiris and attain a form of paradise called Iaru, Seket Aru, or the Egyptian reed fields. Another journey had to be made first, though. The deceased had to board the boat of the god Ra and cross a lake of fire, which was guarded by four baboons, as well as face crocodiles, snakes, and the gigantic monster Apophis, who was condemned forever to sink the boat of Ra. The only assistance the deceased might have would be the amulets and formulas prepared for them by the priests during mummification. Good grief, you'd think they'd have a good health system, because if that's what you knew was coming after you died, my, my, my.
0: Well, I've got real problems with a lot of what we get handed um, with Egypt. The the idea of how things were translated and how they became able to read Egyptian. I mean, the more I look at it logically, the more I can find problems. And not only that, um, when you begin to look at the overall ideas that are being expressed in things like the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead, you see real crossover into the ideas of what Buddhism and some of the other Eastern religions are doing. But the like the idea of mummification as an example um, I'm dead but I'm going to maintain this physical thing that I have to leave behind in the form of a mummy I've, I've read versions where actually um, what what was claimed by other researchers was that the mummification process was done to living people and it was an initiation where uh, the ceremony was like you're going to die now, you're going to go through the stages of death and when you come, when we unmummify un-mum- you um, you've never really died but you've gone through this, whatever it was they did, you're going to be ready to go up to the next initiatory step. And when I read those, they seem to make more sense. But on a whole, it seems to me like uh, ancient Egyptian has really been used by the Western world to encode things. It's happening right now. Look at ISIS. The idea of ISIS has been wholly hijacked, to make a bad pun, um, to get us uh, baited into this whole fear porn thing about supposed terrorism. But uh, the more I look at this, the more it just seems like a tangled web of inconsistent ideas. And I know a lot of people might have a problem with that. But the the real problem that I had is when I began to contrast it to things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead – It's a very precise thing, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Whatever you want to make of it, um, there seem to be truly who people truly tried to make a science of what happens when a person dies, what is experienced after the fact, these types of things with meditation involved. And a lot of these ideas, even as you opened with the Ka, the Aj, uh, and the Ba, um, these have direct corollaries in that tradition. But that's just my take on it, Jason.
1: Well, I would say that this is the mainstream sanitized version of a lot of egyptian mythology there's no doubt that there's a lot more to egyptian symbolism and beliefs because we see the elite using those symbols for their own purposes so why would they do that there's there's got to be more meaning there that's that's what i think
0: Yeah, I think that probably the reality of pyramids and ancient Egypt has wholly been obfuscated. Um, It clearly relates to the Bible we have in the West, uh, the Egypt's all over the Old Testament. And um, again, when you go back to how we came to be able to read the hieroglyphics, I mean, there is a whole ball of tangled yarn there. I mean, even to the point where there's people who did certain translations who are now defamed, and it's even been echoed in movie. What was that movie, Stargate, where they're mentioning some of the people who had other translations and the comments are made, oh, you're using the wrong translation here. Um, it seems to me like it's a mess that's not easily unmessed up, <laughs> to, to be honest. To me, uh, the, the antiquity of, of Egypt, I think, is, is wholly false. Uh, that's just me. But I suspect all that stuff is a lot closer to the modern age than we've been led to believe. And what's actually happening is happening is they keep trying to push it back further and further. And no matter what new things come to light, that challenge, the kind of scientism, Egyptology timeline, they always stick to their guns and hold to this construct they've made. So to me, there's little or no value. I suspect if we could meet people from that part of the world, they would have a wholly different point of view than probably what we just read here.
1: Well, I think so. First of all, I think all of this could very possibly be tied up with the the altered timelines that we've been discussing the past few weeks. So we don't know literally when these things may have actually taken place in reality, as opposed to what we're told is is the reality. And second of all, a lot of people that I know who get into the whole comedic study, it's a lot more spiritual in the sense, I don't want to say esoteric, but maybe that's the word I should use, where they're discussing things like frequency and vibrations and, and ma- very good mathematics and that sort of thing.
0: You know, even in the modern age, when we look at all the space space nonsense that goes on um, regularly, Egyptian stuff is Masonically encoded into the space nonsense. And that tells us something about what we can get our hands on. It's been manipulated, in my view. Uh, do you remember the Rosetta Philae mission uh, that I broke down? I mean, the whole thing was related to Egyptian myth in one way, shape or form, but it was pretty clear it was being used in a way that was hidden from the average person. And while we could deduce that, yeah, there's an ISIS temple on this island, they're naming everything after, they're naming cameras, Osiris, they're doing all these things, the actual meaning of what they're pointing to is not so easy to get to. Um, So for my money uh, in in the West, or at least with what I, the, the the limited amount of knowledge I have about it, it really seems like it's just a kind of messy mess, <laughs> the, the Egyptian stuff. And uh, again, not to, to echo too hard, but I mean, come on, they're, they're echoing a supposed terrorist group named ISIS to this day. And that tells us something about these ideas.
1: Yeah. And of course, when I first heard that term ISIS, I was like, why would they call themselves after an Egyptian goddess? You know, just come on, something's there.
0: Well, it almost seems like there's probably valuable information in an older idea of ISIS. And what they've done is they've wrapped it up in fear porn. Um, You know, we we have the Trinity idea in almost every major religion we can look at. And the idea of ISIS and what we know of that is no different. But yet here it is wrapped up in the modern age in fear porn. And and I would ask, really? um, So we're being told there's Middle Eastern terrorist groups who are supposedly uh, of a religion that won't even inscribe the pictures of human beings and they're naming their group ISIS. I mean, really, it's just all nonsense to me, man.
1: Yeah. All right. Next, we're going to look at the Hindus who uh, also hold a belief in spiritual existence beyond death, as well as reincarnation. If one is to be reincarnated, they believe that the subtle body survives death. The subtle body is said to be a collection of one's senses, actions, mind and intellect this would then be transmitted to another physical body if one is a brahmin a follower of the creator god and the unchanging essence of the universe and is not to be reincarnated then only the essential self survives death this essential self is made of the same thing as brahma and one reunites with brahma after death so there is in effect no personal survival of individual identity If one devotes oneself to another god, for example, Krishna, and the deceased is able to avoid reincarnation, then one joins with one's god in a way that preserves some sort of personal identity, although what actually survives death in this case is not made very clear, but it presumably is some variation of the subtle body which allows for the retention and preservation of personal identity after physical death. Any sort of punishment in regards to Hinduism occurs in the form of reincarnation. Those who have attained the proper karma, the proper knowledge, or have properly devoted themselves to a particular deity of the Hindu pantheon will avoid reincarnation and can be rewarded by joining the essential, unchanging nature of the universe, which is the Brahma idea, going temporarily to the world of the fathers, or by joining the deity, besides Brahma, to which they have put their personal belief into
0: so, Hindu is old school, um, probably. From our point of view, it is very old school. And what's interesting about the Hindu ideas to me is even when things later came along, like Buddhism and other Eastern traditions, where they were stating like the, the Brahman idea, Brahma, the pre sec isn't right, you know, Buddhists were saying these things. The underlying ideas uh, that were put forth in Hinduism really came forward in, in other things. The idea of the three bodies. I think in Buddhism, it's Nirmanakaya, Dharmakaya. I forget the names for for the three bodies, but these same ideas go on and on and on. But clearly, the one thing almost to a sect, they all support the idea of reincarnation. And again, not to echo too hard, but I just read accounts – up for this show that early Christianity had reincarnation and when I began to think about it that I thought well how can that be I mean there's the whole heaven thing going on in Christianity um, so it wasn't clear to me but the claim is made that in early Christianity they had meditation sciences as Hindus do as Buddhists do um, think of the monk in the cell idea or the vow of uh, you know not speaking for some period of time these are all forms of meditation but it is claimed that they also show the reincarnation idea—hard to know how much of that is accurate.
1: Well, from what I've noticed with religious studies that I've done over the years, a lot of what got into the later belief systems seems to have started with the Hindus, because the Triune God, for instance, does come originally from the Hindu, as far as we've been able to trace back. Of course, we never know how much we get is, is accurate, but the, to the best we can get, the Triune God started there, and then, of course, we see that repeated. In the Egyptian and which I would think would be the next one. And then, of course, Christianity and even Judaism uses it to to a degree. So it's, it's recycled over and over and over again.
0: It's, it's everywhere um, to the point where you have to kind of start to accept that there's an important idea being hidden under the surface here. But when we get back to these really what we assume are very old traditions like Hinduism and then later Buddhism, um, they're directly echoing the natural ideas that we would call alchemy now. They're still using the idea of the elements being air, water, fire, you know, as we've said so many times here. Um, but this triune deity, there has to be an importance there, even – the the fear porn using ISIS, they're basically taking one portion of the triune deity idea there and turning it into fear porn. Almost looks like they're purposely trying to steer people away from an important
1: idea that's been hidden in time. And that's exactly what I think it is. There's more there that they are aware of and they don't want us to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I I
1: don't think there's any
0: doubt. When you begin to see it mixed with the modern fear porn and the ridiculousness of media, uh, for those of us who have come to understand what it is that drives our system, uh, you understand a few things, and you understand that when you see anything used in this way, there is a reason for it, and that reason is manipulation.
1: Now, it's interesting with the Hindu culture, because humans in general will always seem to find a way to enslave other humans so what they've done with their religious beliefs and this caste system that they have they willingly get people to buy into the concept that if you're born into a certain level it's because you deserve karmically spiritually whatever you want to say to be in that system and you can't rise above that particular system that you were born into so they've created a a ready-made group of followers that aren't going to question what they're told from the people in the in the higher levels. It's it's very clever, really, but kind of sick.
0: Well, it's funny because, you know, Buddhism came along later, and they began to talk about the Brahmin priests saying that what they were doing was useless, you know, the, the rituals meant nothing, and that, by the way, Buddhism is for everybody, not just everybody, but all sentient beings, and in the old Hindu tradition, uh, the Brahmin class, and as you're saying, the caste system was a big important part, but the truth is, we can go to India today and still see the remnants of a caste system, and it's not even really remnants, it's there, uh, it may be in some ways in full force. Uh, it's very visible even to this day.
1: Yeah, and it almost holds on to the, uh, the feudal systems. It, it keeps that going. It, it's, it's constantly refueling that because if you've got people who aren't very educated and there's just masses of people just struggling to survive, literally just to have enough to eat from day to day, uh, it's not too hard to keep them believing a certain way because they don't have the chance to even find out about anything else.
0: You know, from a systematic point of view, it's almost genius to have a system like that where everybody knows their place and they're content to be there. Um, and that begins to feed into other Eastern mindsets where the idea of you're actually in nirvana now, you just can't realize it. Um, this place you're standing, this place we're breathing right now, for one person could be a type of hell, for another piece person could be nirvana, which is just a mindset. Uh, when we look at the idea of his Hinduism and caste sets, Uh, on the one hand, systematically, it really works and works to the point where it still exists now. Um, I doubt if people at the low end of the caste system are happy to be there if they're asked. But the point is, is the system functions in the way it was put together and it's lasted a really, really long time. So it's just it's an interesting thing to look at even in that, later traditions came along that said, wait a minute, man, um, all people are created equal. And not only that, all living beings are created equal, making the idea that, you know, a human being is no better than a frog. If you have life in you, um, then that's a divine thing and it should be respected. Um, and yet these older traditions still hold up to this day.
1: Well, the system itself survives, but I don't know if the people are being treated the best because you obviously have a lot more starving people on the streets than... Uh, lords sitting on top in palaces, you know?
0: Um, I imagine that's true. I've never been to that part of the world. I've always wanted to go, um, but I mean you could even take uh, that same view and flip it on its head if we go and look at some of the palaces um, that We are told uh, the Rajas can no longer afford. They've turned them into hotels. In some cases, they don't even live in them anymore. Um, The modern age has really done some things, and you can see the shift. But um, these old, old systems in that part of the world, I think there's underlying things we can learn from them. And it's just really not obvious to a lot of people using a Western mindset.
1: And yet India has a space program. (laughs) Sure they do. (laughs) Something I've always found very interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm not even going to I'm not even going to divert there, Jason. (laughs) Uh, Let's go ahead and push in. If you get me going on the the fallacy of space again, we're going to we're going to spin away from the task
1: at hand. So next, let's talk about Buddhism. Buddhists hold a belief in what is called karma, which could be described as intentional action. Life in Buddhism is all viewed as a circular process, one of life and death. And this is called samsara. This is something one would be seeking to escape from by attaining nirvana or enlightenment. A Buddhist believes that upon physical death, the deceased's energy passes into another form. Depending on the actions performed in previous lives, reincarnation could occur in the form of a human, an animal, ghosts, or even as a demigod or god. Being born as a human being is seen by Buddhists as an opportunity to work on their true spiritual selves to escape samsara. If nirvana is indeed achieved, and once the enlightened spirit dies the physical death, that individual will no longer be reborn. The Buddha taught that once nirvana is achieved, one is capable of seeing the world as it truly is, which means realizing the four noble truths and being totally awake to reality.
0: So... So much going on here, and I spent a lot of my younger life reading uh, a lot of Buddhist traditions, Theravadin, Hinayana, Mahayana, a lot of them. And while so much of it, when you logically begin to apply yourself to it, really seems to to have something to teach you, um, you come to things like you could be born as a hungry ghost. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that, and I don't know if it's just because I have a Western mindset, um, but we could say – Uh, that in this tradition, the mind precedes everything, which I think is a true thing. Um, It does feed into the matrix idea. You know, are you laying on a table somewhere? Who who the hell knows? How would you ever test that? But at the root of the Buddhism that I have studied, I was always very intrigued by the mind sciences. Um, The idea of meditative masters, people who have meditated their whole lives. And not only that, they took very careful careful long period looks at death um what appearance what a person experienced going into death the signs that a person could recognize in themselves when they're getting ready to die there's even things like when your fingernails start to appear a certain way or when the hair on the back of your neck starts to grow up you know that you're approaching what's going to be called death but here's something for you in the uh tibetan book of the dead they break down in some of the versions and there are variants in the versions. I've read I don't know, four or five different versions and there are variances to what's claimed happens after you die. But as you are dying, they use the whole earth, wind, fire, air thing to say you know, the fire is going into the water and what they're talking about is the dissolution of the body. Uh, in the western idea of alchemical uh, alchemy we might think of one thing transmuting into another as we move away from the living state into whatever death is. But they they say things like, the inter- as you begin to die, some of the internal things you see. And these are pretty universal. There is some variance. Um, one thing you begin to notice is the appearance of smoke. Um, then there's another later portion of the dying process where they claim the individual dying sees the appearance of fireflies or sparks within the smoke. And then they talk about the appearance of a sputtering butter lamp about to go out. And then, you know, there's there's variance from that point forward. Um, At first, the butter lamp, then a clear vacuity field with white light. And, you know, how many people... How many people in the West have read about near death experiences where everyone always talks about the white light, or when someone has died on the operating table, you always hear about the white light? In Buddhism, this is explained in great detail in the Book of the Dead. Um, the idea here is that in this particular tradition, they took a lot of time to apply meditation, mind sciences, and very close observation to what's happening in death. And I think there's a lot to learn here. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to say that Buddhism is for everyone. But there's not a single tradition that I don't want to look at in this world to see if there's something there where I can gain something of value. And I think that Buddhism and, and its its predecessor, maybe Hinduism, there's a lot there um, that goes way, way back and relates to a kind of more natural view of things. But anyhow, I think you're about to address the Four Noble Truths.
1: Yeah, I'm going to read the Four Noble Truths one at a time. And I'd like to hear your take on your own personal experiences after each one, because way more than I ever have, I think you've you've looked at and possibly even embraced some of the ideas of Buddhism.
0: Yeah, um, there's no getting away from it. Again, as a whole, I don't belong. I'm not a Buddhist. I don't belong to any organized religious tradition. Um, But what I try to do is to recognize uh, the things that are old and valuable and relate in a more natural way. Um, And that's that's what I've tried to do. So.
1: So the first one is the truth of suffering, or dukkha.
0: So, you know, I, I don't think anyone can really deny this. Um, as a living being, the idea here is that if you're going to live, you're going to suffer. And while, you know, clearly People have different experiences in this world. I mean, when I was growing up, one of my friends was the luckiest guy you ever saw in your life. I mean, we would need money. This guy would find a $20 bill on the ground. He very rarely got hurt. But on the whole, even that very lucky individual did have some accidents, did – have a number of things that would qualify as suffering. Even if a person goes through their whole life where they've been pretty fortunate, they've never really been injured or had all these things that you could classify as suffering, there will come a time when they're going to get sick and die, and that, in essence, is a form of suffering. So um, I think as you go through the Four Noble Truths, there really is a lot to be gleaned of value from that, from these ideas.
1: The second one is the truth of the cause of suffering, or... Samudaya. Yeah, Samudaya.
0: What's going on here is people in meditation and by observing life have uh, started to identify that people who live here suffer. And so then uh, in in the case of the myth that we're told about the Buddha, um, he begins to break down, well, why do we suffer? And so he basically comes to the conclusion uh, that craving and ignorance is what causes all suffering.
1: Predominantly, I would say that's true. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, when you logically begin to break it down, um, you do come to the conclusion that if you could just go sit somewhere and be content with whatever it is you had, a lot of the suffering would be out of your life. And the fact that we want money and we want houses and we want a wife and we want our significant other to be faithful to us. These are, in fact, um, the root of a lot of the suffering we experience.
1: The third truth is the end of suffering or Nirhadya.
0: So... I'm not going to get into this one very far, but it's basically on a logical progression here, identifying that we suffer, why we suffer, how to end suffering, and then, uh, of course, you're going to get to the path here.
1: The truth of the path that frees us from suffering, or MAGA.
0: The thing about Buddhist traditions is they get so complex and while there are Four Noble Truths, you will find as you get into it that they break down into more and more and more steps. Um, but I would urge anyone to go take a look at them and logically break them down, see if there's anything you think there that's helpful. Uh, for my part, I think a lot of it is logical. I think of a lot of it uh, was developed from people looking directly at nature. As I've said so many times, uh, if you want to identify nonsense, try to find out what's natural Then try to find out what's man-made, and that's a good starting point. And in the case of the four noble truths, I just think that uh, it's based on natural observation.
1: I think it's that, and it's also coming to a peaceful feeling inside of yourself of what you've been given in this life. Because obviously, we aren't cookie cutter, exactly identical people. Every life is different in some way, shape, or form. Even two people born in the same town, going to the same school, all that—it's—it's not going to be identical lives. So. You know, someone who may have a very different upbringing is still going to have problems that bother them as opposed to someone who's born incredibly destitute and struggles just for physical survival. You have to come to peace with whatever it is to raise your spiritual awareness, I guess is a good way of saying it.
0: Right, and and even the idea you're expressing—not uh, only this tradition, not only Theravada Buddhism, not only you know things like uh, uh, the older tradition of Hinduism—they um, tried to identify the causes for why we all experience different sets of problems here. And you know, a lot of it's housed up in the karmic idea. Um, for my money, the idea of karma at its root is basically cause and effect. It, in in the Western tradition, you could call it Newtonian. You really could, and. You know, there's no way to prove, certainly, that these things are going on. But nonetheless, when you logically break them down, I think there's value for the ideas that are being expressed. And in my view, anything that's lasted a long, long time probably has something
1: to teach us. And it seems in general that Buddhist culture is a little less chaotic. I might even say a lot less chaotic than a lot of other cultures that don't approach life in this way. So while I I also am not a Buddhist or subscribe to any one religion or spiritual path, there definitely seems to be a lot of value in it.
0: Well, for me, Buddhist holds the same value as any other tradition I'm familiar with that uses meditation or mind sciences. Um, I think that's one thing that we have come so far from in the Western traditions. And it's a shame. As a matter of fact, they're running a show on TV right now that talks about mindfulness and how there's a big resurgence of mindfulness and how Steve Jobs said, I invented all these things because of my meditation. And, and, you know, this idea that these old traditions we're talking about, which include meditation, there is no getting away from the last two that we've covered here. Meditation is a massive part of of following these traditions now the idea is that the corporate world and the average purple person is succeeding because they're using mindfulness but even even in that the two ideas are at odds on the one hand in the west we're being told look at all the value we can get from mindfulness because you can get a better paying job you can invent things you can get a car where the original traditions are saying look man all the stuff in this world, the harder you try to hold on to it, the more you're gonna suffer and ultimately you're gonna lose it all, and there's not a thing you can do about it. Each one of us is gonna die. And if you look at those two aspects of the same idea, for my money, uh, the one I just explained last there has more value. It is true that the harder we try to hold on to things, the more we will suffer. I have experienced this for myself, and it is true that someday every single thing that I own will not be mine anymore because I will have to pass away. Um, so when we look at these things logically, I just think there's a lot of value there uh, for the average Western mind to at least be exposed to these ideas. And for anyone, meditation, it's a big deal. Um, People would be surprised how little control we have over our mental processes. So there it is, man.
1: Now, my own personal experience with Buddhism a few years ago when I was in a very, very bad emotional state of mind, there's a, a Buddhist temple, a Vietnamese Buddhist temple here in Baton Rouge, and I started going there. Just I showed up one day, and um, even though I didn't understand the language, I could feel the positiveness that was going on there and after going a few times the head monk um, i don't recall what his title or name is in vietnamese but he came to me and he said if i'm interested there is an english-speaking one but i was welcome there anytime like it it was interesting because he could recognize that something was really really bothering me at the time and this expressiveness more than his words said his expressiveness of kindness And consideration for someone in a bad emotional state was very obvious. He could convey that without having to say it in English.
0: You know, compassion is a big part of many of these Eastern religions. And for me, uh, there's real value there. The idea of how you view, say, an animal or even a worm. um, These things have value in these traditions because they they possess life. Um, And it's really no different than like, say, a green movement in the West or being concerned with the environment in the West or the perverted idea of global warming. And we have to protect the environment. All these things are like Western perverted ideas of much older ideas, which really cut through the nonsense and get to the base of it, um, where there's ways to conduct yourself. And I don't really think there's much argument, not for me anyhow, that if you could, in fact, conduct yourself in these ways, you would be a happier person. And not only that, the people and living beings you come in contact with would be happier too. I don't think there's any arguing that. But the truth is, we live in a modern age. And the truth is, we live in the West. And the truth is, we got to pay our rent. We got to get money for food. We got to do all these things in this kind of bizarrely death based system we find ourselves in and so the further in on this road we go the really the harder it is for anyone in our part of the world to get back to these ideas and try to capitalize them on the, you know try to capitalize in some way that matters
1: right and in western culture we've got everything so over corporatized is the word i've been using lately but we've got everyone struggling just to survive and at the same time the concept of more, more, more is constantly being shoved in our face. And religions such as Buddhism kind of take the exact opposite approach that you don't need these things.
0: Yeah, that, that there's so much truth to it. But what what you're actually expressing, in my view, is the corporatization of the Western world. Um, marketing is a big part of corporatization. And what it is, it's superficial. It's Brainwashing in a way to try to expose people over and over and over to things in a clever way that try to get them to consume, to try to change their behavior, to tell them they need all these physical things. And what it is, it's a bit like a band aid to me. Um, We're all going to die. Each one of us is going to die. So is it more important to accumulate houses and bank accounts and all these other things when we know? This day is coming for each of us. Or is it more important to try to find out if there is a deeper meaning to all this? If I can, in fact, live in a certain way that better prepares me to go through that door called death, which we will all go through, along with every flower, frog, everything that lives will go through that door. Is there a better way to do this? And I just think that in the West, we have gotten so superficial and the the culture is so unhelpful as to be... I mean, it's basically a crime in my view, but uh, that, you know, that doesn't even start to address medicine. Jason, think about in the West how medicine isn't even really medicine anymore. It's just chemistry (laughs) for the most part. You know, you're going to get a pill. That's what a lot of medicine is now, where you're going to get chemotherapy, which is basically poison. When you look at these older traditions, these people are still using plant-based medicines. They're still using herbs. They're using the alchemical ideas we've expressed so often on the show that according to what time of the year you were born has a bearing on the medical care you might need. And while I can't expound very far on that, I have met people who were trained in Nepal with the equivalent of a double Ph.D., in both their version of astrology and their version of really what comes down to herbal medicine mostly. And I was astounded. As an example, the man that I met. Um, runs the Tibet House in San Diego, um, and he is basically a PhD in herbal medicine and other things. And he had a head of hair like I had never seen in my life. And as I got to know him better, and I talked to him a few times, uh, he told me there's this oil, this apricot, Tibetan apricot oil that he uses every day. I was actually getting thin hair, and I used it, and it worked like a dream. And I thought, come on, man. We got the hair club for men. We got people getting that doll look where, you know, they plug hair into your head. And here is this apricot oil, which I know for a fact firsthand works. And I, I met a guy who's got more hair on on a single head than every beetle put together. And he attributes it to these older ideas. Uh I'm just saying, man we've we've come far astray in the west in terms of medicine in terms of how to live a life without suffering and i think a lot of the older traditions all of them and i'm not just talking about buddhism here i think all of them are worth people taking the time to look at, because these are human beings that develop these systems. Human beings are human beings. We're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to survive. We're all trying to be happy. We're all trying to raise families. And so the ideas expressed in these old traditions, maybe not for everybody, but if you look hard and you look wide enough, I'm certain you will find things of value. But anyhow, Jason, that brings us about to the top of the hour. Is there anything you want to add before we close it
1: down? Well, I'd like to round off with the Buddhists saying that they believe that certain enlightened individuals can willingly choose to be reborn in order to help others achieve enlightenment, while others believe that once nirvana is achieved, the cycle of samsara is over and all suffering and further existence for the enlightened individual ends, because basically you've become one with the universe, however you want to look at that. Now. Everything out of Buddhism, everything we were just discussing, I would say that there needs to be a happy balance between it all. While materialism, for materialism's sake, is not good, I I can definitely see the idea of having enough to leave to your children so that they have a little bit better life than you did. That's a reason to strive to have something to pass on. But if your entire existence is spent doing nothing but collecting wealth and materials, then I would say that's a life wasted because that time would have been spent better with those children.
0: Well, in the West, we live in a system, don't we? And if you have children, you're going to have concern. You know, uh, what's the myth of the Buddha? Uh, He names his child fetter, you know, basically ball and chain. His child is born the night he's supposedly going to go off and go try to seek enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. And he's faced with a conundrum. Do I go in because my newborn child is there who I haven't seen? Do I kiss my wife and kiss my child or do I go off? And he names the kid basically ball and chain. He calls him fetter because he knows that in this system, if he goes in and sees the child, then he will lose his will to try to go find enlightenment because he will be attached to this world. So we see it over and over. And, and in the bullet point you just mentioned um, is wrapped up the whole idea of the bodhisattva. Um I have seen people take the bodhisattva vow, uh, which is basically saying that even if I reach a time when I could be enlightened, I will continue to be reborn in this world by my own free volition until I help everybody escape from this world. And that's always been a real conundrum for me. I mean, that's maybe the most altruistic thing I've ever heard. But the point is, is there ever really going to be a time? when everyone can escape this place and the way that it's being described, it's almost like saying I could go to heaven, but instead I'm just going to stay here and help people forever, and there's never going to be a time when that ends, but that's also one of the major divisions between what's called Mahayana Buddhism and Hinayana Buddhism, where or Theravadin Buddhism, where certain sects are concentrating on themselves with the ultimate goal of being free of rebirth in this place, and then the other side, the Mahayana tradition having bodhisattvas, where they many who have taken the vow will not leave or state that they will not leave until they've helped everyone escape so there's that anyhow jason anything else you want to add
1: well the problem with all of that is if there's a concept for new souls versus old souls if new souls are always coming into being on this world then there are always people who are going to need help in breaking the samsara, or whatever viewpoint you want to take So if you're trying to come here because you're already enlightened to one degree or another and you're coming here to help them, that work is never done if indeed new souls are being introduced to the system. Well, you
0: see, I have a real problem with that, and I've been thinking about this for many years now. We may even do a show at it at some point. The idea... Uh, of is there really a fixed amount of life or is there more life all the time? Um, is the idea that we can be overpopulated true? And I think that there's real problems with the way that we view things to the point where when you look at the memes and you look at the echoing of these hidden ideas, even in movies where you'll see someone die, you'll see a flash to the moon, and then a baby's born. You see this idea expressed over and over in almost every medium of life. And what it's basically saying is this dude died. Now this dude can be born. Um, that's basically what it's saying. Even the idea that's been explained to you of human sacrifice. Well, we need more abundance here. So we've got to kill off these things so more things can come into existence. I think there's a real argument to be made that there is more stability and more predictability to the amount of life that is in our world but anyhow jason i'm going to bring this to a close do you want to quickly run down what we're going to get into in the second hour and we will be tackling more directly the actual idea of death
1: yeah hour two we're going to of course hit up on some of the other major religions of the world such as christianity judaism and we're going to have a little talk about what mainstream satanism is and their viewpoints and how these all intertwine in our world
0: So there it is, man. That brings the first hour of Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 68, to a close, kind of roughly covering old traditions uh, as they all have a view of death and what happens at death. In the second hour, we're really going to jump more directly in at the ideas of death and finish out with some of the traditions that people in this part of the world might be more familiar with. There it is, man. Hope to see you all over at Crow Triple Seven Radio. Cheers.